How's it going, everyone? This is the Cool for Thought podcast, and I'm Areeb Khan. And I'm Reem. Our goal from the outset of this project has been, in some way, to responsibly bring you all real-life truths from people that you might not otherwise hear from. Throughout the course of our episodes so far, I think we've given you a little bit of insight about the way that we think, and at this point you guys can probably come up with some type of conclusions about how we feel about the election and everything that's happened this year. This is our first episode that we've done that's just the two of us because we feel like to honor our mission statement, it would be a little bit of a disservice to our listeners to not at least attempt to talk about the social impacts of what happened last week especially for those of us who aren't considered the, quote, white working class or elites or media pundits, even though this podcast does give us some semblance of a platform to to really put out some ideas, especially other people's ideas. Before we get into the real conversation, I want to start off with just a couple things. The first is that we believe that activism and change and protest, this is a young person's game. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. When we think about the statued figures in civil rights, the Martin Luther Kings, the Malcolm X's, etc. in American history, these were young people. When Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, he was in his young 30s. He was just about a decade older than Reem and I are. The people who tell you that change and a real impact to American society only comes from an older generation or people who are involved in politics, they're just trying to stifle your ambitions. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I want to say is that to a certain degree, there's a lot to be hopeful for if you're a young minority in America. I know that's not really what a lot of you guys want to hear, and probably up until yesterday, it's not really something that I wanted to hear either. I'm pretty fearful for a lot of the people that I love right now in the United States. I'm fearful for women who wear the hijab. I'm fearful for men who wear turbans or Latino immigrants or the LGBTQ community. And the list really does go on. I'm fearful for children in elementary schools who are being harassed. And honestly, I'm fearful for the kids in middle schools and high schools who are doing the harassing. That being said, I really am hopeful. The George W. Bush era gave us this momentous time when, in 2008, 69 million people came together to vote for what they thought was hope and change. And whether or not you agree with the Obama presidency, that moment was really big for the United States because, like I said, it was a culmination of all of these feelings and um, social change that we wanted to bring about to our everyday lives. I'm hopeful because the thousands, if not millions, of artists and writers and poets and people who impact culture are going to work just that much harder to learn and to grow and to bring people together and to foster love and to break down the walls, literal and figurative, of hate. (laughs) I think the notion of giving Trump a chance is kind of hilarious for a number of reasons. Um, One, there are people who are saying that We shouldn't feel threatened by his rhetoric or policies because it was just campaign rhetoric. There are other people who, you know, look to Trump himself, who say he spent half a decade trying to delegitimize the president that we just talked about, who was elected in 2008. He didn't give him a chance, and 
now when we look forward, we have a president who spent those years delegitimizing our leader and spent the past 18 months saying that the man in the White House was unqualified for this job. But now he has to get extra tutoring lessons after school from the man who (laughs) he's going to take the keys from. And Google searches. And Google searches. (laughs) So that being said, um, I think we kind of just want to get into not only how we're feeling, but also how other Americans are feeling. We want to talk about the impacts towards the people around us and the people who might not be the white working class or the elites that really the media is focusing on after last Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I guess when I when I woke up that morning, um, I felt weird. I felt nauseous. I felt confused. Um, but I it wasn't unexpected. So I think a lot of people um, post-election were talking about, oh my God, how did this happen? And yes, I that was definitely the first thought that came to my mind. But I had to remind myself that this is not a surprise. Um, so June 25th, um, I, I saw this video and I I shared it, um, but Van Jones um, put up this video. (laughs) Yes, he's amazing. Um, But right after Brexit, um, he, I think you probably saw this video too, but um, Van Jones goes live and goes on this this rant, but a very, very rational and very real um, rant that says that he captioned, freaking out, yes, Brexit proves Trump can win. Um, and so, you know, just kind of after seeing that, I, it really did hit me. I was like, wow, if, if, you know, all of these things around the world are truly happening, um, it wasn't just Brexit, but it's just the culmination of things one after the other happening. Um, it really was kind of a wake up call. You know, people are saying, oh, you know, Trump, uh, this is a joke, um, he can't be serious, he can't, you know, be this hateful, right? We, we wanted to really kind of deny it. Um, but, you know, that kind of was a, a reality for me. And I was like, wow, it really could happen. Um, and, I, and I did anticipate it. So I think I wasn't as shocked as most people. Yeah, and the second thing that, you know, I wanted to mention about that is, you know, the day after the election, um, I was on my way to work listening to NPR, uh, and one of uh, Trump's policy analysts, um, you know, was talking, and they were, you know, all, you know, all chiming in um, on, uh, you know, how did this happen, right? Like, are people really shocked? Why are they shocked? Um, all of this, and, and this guy goes and he says, I don't understand why people are surprised. Um, the people who truly are surprised are ones who are out of touch uh, with the majority of the American mm. population, mm. right? And so, um, and he says that, you know, the media truly, truly um, is disconnected um, and has, you know, no matter what the agenda is, you know, so if we say Fox News, uh, you know, CNN, MSNBC, no matter what the agenda is, the media truly is, in his, you know, in his uh, opinion, is out of touch with... Um, People, real America. Real America, right? And so, and he says, if 
if everyone was boots on the ground like I was and I was going to all these different communities I was you know going to rural towns you know suburban you know you name it um, and he said that that's truly you know their realities are different than the realities of us right the ones that are you know kind of eating up all this um, this media and then you know social media um, we have access to technology we have you know access to intellectual conversations um, that we are the ones that are out of touch with the reality um, of America. And so, I mean, and that got me thinking that, you know, you know, there has to be something missing. Like there has to be this bigger question mark that if this many people um, are fully uh, believing in Trump's agenda or Trump's um, anti-establishment uh, rhetoric and they're fed up and they're, you know, working class uh white people who feel like you know they want to be included and they want um jobs then maybe there's there is a disconnect and so i guess i guess the thing that i would say especially if i could get in front of a campaign surrogate you know the first thing that i would mention is that yes there were of course a lot of people who voted for donald trump you know like 60 million people or 61 million people or whatever the total is going to end up being Mm -hmm. um but at the end of the day it still is true that, you know, the reason she lost electorally was because there were a hundred thousand votes in total that she could have gained in yep. Wisconsin. What was it? Wisconsin, Michigan, and like Pennsylvania or something like that. Yep. Yep. So it's not like it, this was a blowout. Um, to say that this was an electoral blowout or something like that is, right. is a little misleading. But I mean, that's not you know mis misleading the the nation or the public isn't necessarily something we should be surprised about from a campaign right. surrogate. Um, the other thing that I would say is that when people say that the media or, you know, the, the coasts, uh, the East Coast and the West Coast, the people who live in the quote unquote bubbles, um, as uh, Mike Huckabee likes to call them, mm-hmm. uh, when they say that we're out of touch with real America, mm-hmm. that tells you a few things about the way that that person thinks. Right. Because the first thing I think about is, okay, well, you just said that there's a real America and that there's a fake America. So Mm -hmm. I must be living in the fake America where there are minorities and there are uh, women of color and there are there is religious diversity. And therefore, we're invalid. Exactly. Um, So it really gives you a you know, it gives you a viewpoint into that person's mind about what they feel real America is. Right. Additionally, I think that calling the flyover states as some people refer to them to or again like Mike Huckabee calls them the Bubba's in you know in contrast with the bubbles mm-hmm. um, those quote-unquote Bubba's they go to all-white churches and all-white schools and have all-white workplaces yep. and all-white grocery stores and they don't have to come in contact or communicate with um, a black person or, um, you know, a Latino immigrant or um, an Asian person. And so that's actually just something that has kind of been stewing in my mind. You know, what is real America? Mm-hmm. Is it what is now considered Trump's America? You know, those flyover states that all went red, um, those areas that, you know, are donning the, the red caps, um, you know, is that real America or is the epicenters of culture, the, 
the New Yorks, the LAs, things like that. Are right. are, are those the you know this the points of real America? Right. Um, and I mean, this is going to bring me to a very um, <laughs> crazy point. But um, my friend and I were were talking about exactly this point: is that you know these these hubs, these these metropolitan areas. I mean, it's pretty clear that um, even you know Democrats tend to live around each other and right. you know minorities also kind of tend to live around each other um and so that's why you have these these kind of um centers like i mean you see it on on even the maps right when people are voting like even virginia for example you see all red and then you'll see a cluster of blue right yeah. up here in northern virginia right um so you know you can see that you know there are the two americas right um, and then, you know, some people are just like, well, maybe there should be just two Americas, right? Maybe that's the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, no one is ever happy with any <laughs> election result. Um, and, you know, there's all this polarization, um, you know, uh, uh, in the past couple of years in Congress. And, um, and so does it make sense, right? Like, does it make sense to have these two Americas? And, you know, people right. are joking about California, like, seceding, right? <laughs> right? But it's real. Like, I mean, I think people are thinking, you know, what's the solution? Right. Um, what What is truly going to make people happy? And so if, you know, people in, uh, you know, rural areas and, you know, these, these spaces where they have never been exposed to the other, truly content with that mm. then that's fine you know maybe they want to live in in certain places and we mm. want to live in certain places so maybe I, there should be two americas yeah. right but um assuming that that's not going to happen soon <laughs> or <laughs> ever <laughs> um i think it's just uh, to me i think the trend that i've been noticing and what kind of people have been talking about is just this kind of want for change right so whether we are in touch or out of touch or whatever it is, um, it's it's clear that we have to acknowledge that we we are in a space right now um, where there are opportunities, right? Where there are um, intellectual spaces um, and, and just a lot of things being offered to us, mm-hmm. right? People who don't have that, um, you know, you can you can drive just you know, two hours south, right, in Virginia, and it's completely different, mm-hmm. um, different world, right? So that being said, is it just that people in those spaces just want change, right? So when we saw what happened in the 2008 election, right? There are places that always went red, that went blue, right? right? Because Obama came with kind of that, you know, in a weird twisted way the same kind of rhetoric that this is change this is something completely different yeah. that this is going to bring you jobs and opportunities and and people were fed up after right. bush and, and and what he'll tout is that you know he, he didn't um specify white working class like we right. are now in the media he he went to speak to the working class right because when people say the white working class that really is a slap in the face to people like you and me people like latino immigrants people like yeah. asian immigrants oh they like don't that. work <laughs> right, because yeah, because largely among brown and black and you know other um, communities, they are the working class. They are. I mean, um, and it's we don't. They we, never stop working. You know, 
my parents don't work desk jobs um and you know they never really have and i don't think they ever really will have that comfort of a desk job right. so when you know when my parents turn this turn cnn on or turn the news on generally and they hear white working class um you know so my parents don't really know too much about politics they never cared too much about politics until recently um but you know my dad asked me one day he's he actually recently he said you know why are they talking about the white working class? Because he just didn't understand what that was, right? Because to him, the working class is the people he's it's been everyone. working with for his entire life in America. And but see, and exactly, and that's that is completely indicative of the sense of entitlement that you know this economy has a priority, and mm-hmm. that priority should be white Americans, mm-hmm. right? Because they you know, it's kind of like the immigration issue where they feel like, oh my God, like mm-hmm. all the immigrants are taking our jobs, right? right. Um, and so that's that's really what, you know, Trump is speaking to is yeah. that, hey, you deserve these jobs first yeah. and foremost, more than and, anyone else. Yeah. And so then that brings me to then two points. One is that, um, you know, when we talk about these quote unquote white working class jobs, what jobs are we talking about? We're talking about stuff like steel jobs, we're talking coal about mining. manufacturing jobs. We're yeah. talking about coal jobs. These are all 20th century jobs and uh, you know careers or or positions that uh, that are that are outdated. Mm-hmm. We're not bringing coal jobs back. We're not bringing steel jobs back to America. And Trump right. definitely isn't bringing these jobs back to America, considering no. the fact that he produces all of his goods out of the country. Right. So, <laughs> which is that's the exact right. irony of this whole thing is that people have put their faith in their complete hope right in someone like him right right but they don't realize that that's not gonna come from someone that's that's sitting on as much money as he is and um has actually built his empire off of Latino workers right. mainly. Um, he definitely didn't have um, you know factories that employed people in you know Southwest Virginia mm-hmm. um, or or West Virginia, right? So um, yeah, the, the 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 industries themselves are outdated, right? Um, and I think that issue. It's easy to say, hey, well, you know, you should just adapt, right? You mm-hmm. should um, you know integrate yourself into new skills and a new um, you know, a job environment, but mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to be insensitive to that um, because it is hard. Not, yeah. And, and, and yeah, and that's the thing that I think Obama tapped into, mm-hmm. that he could break through that racial barrier right? because he could talk to those people. And, and I mean, he said it in, I, I believe, the press conference yesterday that he had, you know, he said that the reason why he won states like or certain counties in states like Iowa or Middle America, because mm-hmm. he was there for many days and he was at every VFW and fish fry and things like that that he said, you know, because he was actually talking to these people about real economic issues and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also believe that there's a certain sense of, or, or there's some disconnect um, with things like, you know, bringing back coal jobs and kind of, where our economy needs to be moving in terms of jobs, mm-hmm. where our economy needs to be going in terms of, um, you know, I guess like the buzzword around what our economy should be is is a service economy now, right? Mm-hmm. And people say, actually, I think Van Jones has put out like a three-part mini documentary series or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, I saw that. And 
I, I only saw, I think, one of the portions of it, but right. he's, he's speaking with the family in their living room, and, you know, the father says, you know, I've lost, I think he said two different careers, and now he's working in, like, cigar, the cigar industry or something like that. And right when I heard that, I thought, you know, you know what would be great for these people who have lost their jobs and need to get retrained? Free community college. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is what Obama... Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. mean it's 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 not a coincidence, right? right? Um and I think that yeah, Obama has definitely worked on that a lot and I, I mean he's just been getting so much pushback on yeah. on everything, right? Since he uh stepped foot in office. Yeah. Um I mean, you know, I I bring it back to again my own parents and my own family. I mean, you know, working these quote unquote like being in these quote-unquote working class positions i mean my dad's been laid off you mm-hmm. know my dad's lost his job Same and his here. career and stuff like that right right and instead of and this is something that i think a lot of these quote-unquote middle america white working class people talk about is that you know we want free stuff from the, you know the people on in the bubbles or the minorities they want free stuff from the government and mm. things like that um our parents aren't going to the government and saying hey why did you cut my job no, instead they actually just, you know, pick they're, up and Yeah, and they're they're waking up the next morning and they're yeah. saying, How the hell am I going to put new. food on the table? Right. And they work towards it. And exactly. I and I think that really is, you know, uh, kind of the the immigrant work ethic, um, mm-hmm. if you wanna call it that. But I think um, our parents they had to come from um, you know, somewhere they had to come here and pick up and start from from scratch right Mm -hmm. so that that initial starting from scratch point was so difficult that i think after that once they do kind of um you know face setbacks yeah and they and they move in and out between different jobs and careers and whatnot they're more resilient and they're they're more willing to kind of bounce back and look for something new um, because like you said, at the end of the day, they really just have to think, okay, how am I going to f- put food on the table? And they, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't know about your parents, but you know, my, my dad's view is that we are not entitled to anything. Um, and that includes, you know, you know, government assistance or whatnot. So I think that, um, I, I think we've witnessed our families go through the same kind of issues right where you know layoffs losing a job because this industry has moved or you know um this company's going out of business but they're just easily adoptable mm-hmm. um i don't know what it is but mm-hmm. um you know the other thing that i, I want to mention um kind of along those lines is um you know for example in the the coal mining industry it is a culture yeah. Um, so Absolutely. it is difficult, right? So whereas our parents might not have built a culture around what they do with other people, maybe that's why it's easier for them to move on to other things. But, you know, take West Virginia, you know, parts of West Virginia where there are, you know, mountain communities um, or, mm-hmm. you know, coal mining communities, they build, you know, their families around it, their food, their mm-hmm. culture, their their music, um, everything, and so that's why they they get upset. They they don't want um, it just because I've I've worked on stuff like this, and they 
are really, really adamant about, you know, people like me, like environmental people who are concerned about all this stuff saying like, oh no, don't, don't burn coal, don't do this, don't do that. And then they're like, well, what about our livelihood, right? right, um, right. And it's, and their livelihood is so connected with that community and, and everything that is embedded in it. Right. That it makes them this upset, upset enough to vote for someone like Trump. Right. And I think, I don't know, I guess to, to kind of sum up a few points, I, I think this is probably also a good time to mention to everybody listening that, um, Rima, I think I can speak for you in this too. I wasn't too excited about Hillary Clinton. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say that, like, when Hillary Clinton announced her presidency or her candidacy for presidency, I was like, oh, hell yeah, like, I'm with her. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I would love to have a female president. I think that having um, a female's point of view in the Oval Office would be a massive change for the United States. And I think that that would be a great thing, regardless of the fact that she's a, you know, moderate corporatist. Mm -hmm. But that fact aside, um, you know, I also don't want our listeners to think that we just came here or we're talking to you guys just to um, bash, you know, white America, quote unquote, or middle America or anything like that. Because when we talk about being fearful for these, for people generally, I think something that we're all fearful for is, um, you know, a lot of Americans losing a lot of things that they have earned or um, they, in some sense, I guess, are entitled to things like Social Security, things like Medicare, things that I personally, I believe we should be we should be helping people out with. We should be helping people with their things like health insurance um, that, yeah. you know, many people are are possibly going to lose on either day one or day 100 when Obamacare gets repealed or defunded or whatever it ends up being right changed right or just changed generally and i think that a lot of middle america and again i I really hate using this term so i apologize but a lot of those states and a lot of those people who voted for this administration are are really going to unfortunately be slapped in the face when they realize that the people that they (laughs) voted for are taking away things like their medicare and are Mm think taking away things like their social security and these quote-unquote safety nets and these free things from the government like this is helping out so many people not just black people not just white people not just brown people these are real tangible things that people are going to lose out on and it's going to hurt a lot of people and you know what if if somehow they get those 60 votes and the full ACA is actually repealed and 20 million people lose their health care that's going to be 40,000 deaths per year mm-hmm. just because people don't have health care. Right. Right. And and that's that is the sad part about this is that they don't realize that you know they're going to feel his wrath. Right. right. And and so many of these people voted for not not these people, I'm sorry. So many people voted for Donald Trump because of the rising premiums in Obamacare. I Again, I, I don't want to get too nitty-gritty into the policy details of this. You probably know this better than I do, but right before the election, a lot of people's healthcare premiums did go up. Um, mm-hmm. I personally know you know, at least a handful of people whose Obamacare premiums went up by, uh, by a significant amount, you know, a few hundred dollars. Yeah. That's not a small amount of money. Yeah. That's a problem. Yeah. But these problems were, were created 
by people who wanted this pushback on Obama's legislation. They wanted this pushback so that they could have people feel the effects of what, quote-unquote, Obamacare did to people. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, there was Obama was requesting, I believe, $2.5 billion dollars um, for what's called like high risk pools. So mm-hmm. these people who the administration said your premiums are going to go up or you may lose your health care because we don't have this money that we should have from Congress. And Congress straight up said no. Um, Paul Ryan and the Republicans said no, we're not going to give you this money. And then less than a week after after the election, they found over $2.5 billion to put into Obamacare. Yep. Yeah. So what was that other than politics? Like, I'm not even being a partisan here. I'm being wholly honest. Why did we raise these people's premiums? For political purposes? Why did we take people off of health care so that we could get our party elected? Yeah. And I mean, I think that's um, the exact, I guess... This the answer is, would be yes, basically. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, this is exactly what polarization is and what it does, right? Is that, you know, people are here upset about premiums going up and they're like, Obama, Obama, like they're blaming it, right, yeah. on him. And um, they think that, you know, he's not here to help all these Americans who never, who didn't have health care before. Um, and yes, the premiums would go up, but they don't realize that that is a result of pushback from the Republican Party itself. Yeah. And, and, I, and that same party that they're voting in right now. Right, right. <laughs> and, and I don't want to sit here again and, and say that the Democratic Party is perfect. I personally, I blame 75% of this loss on the Democrats. Right. I truly believe that um, the Democrats were misguided in a lot of their campaign efforts. Um, as a Democrat, I believe that Robbie Mook was a pretty bad campaign manager. Can I say that and mm-hmm. still have some semblance of like friends after this? <laughs> like, I think Robbie Mook was probably pretty bad at his job. Um, sorry, I don't think you're listening anyway. Not to um, mention the all the DNC fiascos. Right, um, right. None of that helped, and yeah. now and now it's so unfortunate to hear Hillary Clinton come out and and. I guess it was privately she blamed Jim Comey. I mean, yes, I I do believe that the that the FBI scandal, whatever all that stuff was, did impact a certain amount of voters. For sure. Um, but to say that she lost the election because of that, I think, um, shows a fundament a fundamental misunderstanding of what happened throughout this campaign season. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Trump was you know, extremely lucky to have, uh, you know, Kellyanne, Kellyanne Conway. Yeah. As much as I, as much as Kellyanne Conway makes my skin crawl, she is one of the best political minds we've seen in the last decade. Right. Enough Um, to, you know, disprove everyone in this election. Right. Right. And she was saying it, she's like, you know, people are saying this about him and people think that's not going to happen, but you know, this is why he's he's this and he's that. And, and I mean, just the way that she talks, it's just like she's just so confident and chill right. about everything. And I think that's the kind of, you know, fieriness and confidence that needed to be in the Hillary campaign, right? And I mean, and I think that she also, I mean, did the job of, um, you know, kind of 
bashing uh, the Hillary course, campaign. Right, and, right. But that's um, also probably part of her job. Right. But, right. I, but I, the point is that, you know, Republicans really um, had this idea of, you know, her being corrupt and having poor judgment. And I, you know, I was watching um, an interview with, um, with, with uh, Kellyanne and she was like, you know, how could people say that, you know, Trump has um, poor judgment, you know, Hillary, um, you know, has Uma Abedin on, on her campaign and she's, you know, married to this sleazeball who does X, Y, and Z. And how do they trust someone like this to be president? It's, it's things like this, right. That are so easily like people, people really, really believe buy into it. Yeah. Right. They buy into it. And even me, like I'm watching, I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah, like, she's right. Yeah. What? Because yeah. yeah, because I think you hit the nail on the head. When Kellyanne Conway I, I'm I'm if our listeners don't know this already, I'm a super political nerd and uh, I listen to Meet the Press every week. Um, <laughs> and you know, she she's been on stuff like Meet the Press pretty often throughout yes. the campaign season and um and regardless on a lot of things. Yeah, and regardless <laughs> of what was happening in or around the Trump campaign. Her message was very, very on point and very confident. And every time, yes, regardless of the questioning, because I do believe that uh, you know a lot of interviewers and a lot of journalists really did push back on her messaging and they really did try to pin her into holes um, that they were unsuccessful in doing. And she would just exactly she was and every single back. time, every single time you heard somebody like Robbie Mook or or really half of the other. Um, democratic surrogates they were on the defensive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. regardless of the fact that they were leading in all the polls and they were um, you know the resounding favorite they were always on the defensive every single time I heard a question towards Robbie Mook about these emails in the words of Bernie Sanders these damn emails <laughs> um, every single time they were asked about the emails he was on the defensive and he said you know I can't verify uh, the accuracy in these emails, and he would just have this smug grin. And it was just the most disingenuous thing I've ever seen in my life. And this is somebody who has followed politics for as long as I can remember, right? Like, to see that contrasted with these super confident, at the very least, um, confident Trump surrogates, to the average person and to the average voter... That's influential. Right. I'm probably going to believe the person who's like really confident in what they're saying and who's not backpedaling. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I mean, after after the election, I just I watched one video after another of interviews with uh, Kellyanne Conway. And I was like, wow, I I'm kind of believing her right now. You know, I, I think that people who have watched that regularly or have seen that you know, all along this, um, you know, this campaign trail, it's great. It's, mm-hmm. it's, that's exactly who mm-hmm. they need to speak to them, mm-hmm. right? And Trump put her on the front lines, and he was successful in mm-hmm. doing that. And, yeah, and, and the confidence is, is big, especially because this election showed us that facts don't matter. Exactly. Um, and they do all, not. <laughs> and all of the fact-checking and, um, you know, what have you, it just played into their notion of this is a this is a liberal bias, right? Because every single time Trump or somebody else would get fact checked, at some point it just became this grueling process where, 
again, to the average voter, even to my parents who, you know, are not astute political observers, they would hear all these fact checks and they would say, you know, are people really voting based off that? Are people really voting mm. based off the number of lies Donald Trump, you know, says per day? Well, yeah, there, there's, <laughs> there's this journal, right. I mean, I yeah. believe they should, but, but that's just not how it works anymore or, or ever really in American politics because yeah. before people were lying, but it was both candidates lying on average probably about the same amount and they were just lying about different things. Yeah. Whereas there was a journalist, or there is a journalist, uh, I believe his name is Daniel Dale. Um, he, you know, took on the role of like massive Trump fact checker during this election cycle. And for the past <laughs> couple months, I would see, you know, a tweet every other day or, you know, every couple days um, where he would, um, he would type out every single lie that Donald Trump told on the campaign trail every single day. And he averaged like, 30 lies per day and Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton averaged like four or six or seven lies per day. But those damn emails. <laughs> right. It, it just didn't matter to the average person yeah. because when they hear him talk and when they hear him talk about these rallies and mm-hmm. all of this stuff, you know what? That That is very influential to people. I mean, exactly. And I, it just shows you that this whole election or this whole campaign just is, is playing to people's emotions, right? right? You know, he said things that really, really, um, you know, drew in people who feel excluded, uh, you know, white folks who feel excluded from the economy, who, you know, lost their jobs and what have you, everything that we've been talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And then on the opposite side, it played to people's emotions in, in terms of rage, right? And, mm-hmm. um, and annoyance and, you know, people who... Our minorities, people like us, who are like, "What? This is not true. Like, yeah. how could he be saying this?" It's, it's all about playing to people's emotions, and I mean, that really got him to where he was. And right. it's sad, but I mean, Hillary just didn't say outrageous things like he did. Right. And I guess that's what people, you know, right. that's what people listen to these days. When you perceive a different set of facts, and when you live in a different world, a different, a different type of bubble um mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and, and you do vote on these issues you know when you see a candidate who is objectively not subjectively when you see a candidate who is objectively racist um, in his rhetoric objectively xenophobic or anti-semitic or islamophobic or you know the list goes on when you see these things or hear these things on the campaign trail and you choose to vote for that person anyway um you do say or you know you do acknowledge those things but you vote for that person anyway because you make the decision that those things don't matter to you and that the people who are affected by those things don't matter enough to you yeah and i mean exactly and i think it it comes down to um you know what people say in a um in a sound bite right yeah the slogans the um just just those buzzwords that everyone wants to hear i mean like you know the make america great again like what does that even mean yeah. right and, and, and but it yeah. sounds great to people yeah and to minorities um especially you know when when that phrase first came out i mean everybody all minorities i know were saying what is what is, what is again right because for black people i know america's never been great for black people objectively nope. i can i can state to all of our listeners america has not no. been great for black people right america has not been great for latinos america has not been great for muslims and and i, I mean you know i could 
I could give you guys an entire hour's worth of a rant on another day <laughs> about how you know um, Italian immigrants and Irish immigrants and different white Europeans have been able to assimilate into America. But you know, for all of these people of color, mm-hmm. when we hear "Make America Great Again," we're really offended because that means taking it back to a time when America was specifically not great for mm-hmm. us. And there were um, systemic, uh, well, I guess, legal ways of oppressing people. Exactly. Right? And, uh, more and, than they are right now. <laughs> yeah, and I think in, in some way that's why I think a lot of people, especially of our generation, a lot of people of color, a lot of women, a lot of um, immigrants, I think that's why we're so offended and we're so hurt by these these results because it's one of the first times at least in our lifetime that we've been explicitly told that we don't matter as much as the quote-unquote white working class Mm -hmm. yeah and we're told explicitly that black lives matter is irrelevant it's you know it's just violent it's it's not doing anything for people right Right. And, Um, and and that goes back to the perception game because the perception and the narrative um, is you know that they are just another terrorist organization um, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I truly believe that by the end of this this four years that the the ominous Black Lives Matter umbrella whatever is going to be labeled as a federal terrorist organization just like the On Black the Panther list. Party was yep. right whereas in if you you know drive an hour and a half south of here and go to Richmond they're allowed to have public KKK rallies mm-hmm. yep on state property and i just that is just something i will just i I do not understand how this is getting through to people like how do they think that you know trump being supported and and you know openly endorsed by the kkk is something to to be looked over because yeah and it's and how and i think that i think that the appointment of um, of Steve Bannon, I know probably a lot of people have been waiting for us to get to this point, but to talk about Steve Bannon, I mean, you know, not only Breitbart, but just his own personal um, statements and the articles that he puts out and, and things like that, um, you know, for him to be chief strategist, whatever his title is, all it tells us again in America is that Jewish people don't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to the Donald Trump presidency, that Muslims don't matter, that women don't matter. All of these people, we, we just simply don't matter because we have Reince Priebus, who, in my opinion, is kind of a party hack who is going to make the trains run on time, as, as they say, um, and the person who's going to have um, Donald Trump's ear unencumbered will be this person who literally told his wife he didn't want his children going to school with Jews. Mm -hmm. Who has literally said that birth control makes women unattractive and crazy. Yeah. And again, that list list goes on and on and on and on. It's horrendous. It's horrendous. Um, And this person, you know, has been praised by the American Nazi party. Mm -hmm. That's not normal. I think that the appointment of Steve Bannon was a real test for America. It was a real litmus test for what we will allow and what we won't allow. And for a lot of us who are living in these, you know, people of color bubbles or minority bubbles or metropolitan bubbles, I think a lot of us have have really become outraged in the last 24, 48 hours at this appointment. 
But for the majority of Americans, they couldn't care any less. They couldn't care any less that David Duke is on Twitter every day praising this appointment. They couldn't care any less that the KKK is planning celebratory rallies. They couldn't care any less that literally the American Nazi party has endorsed these people. Yeah. So for a lot of us, the question now is, is what do we do moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I I don't have an answer for that yet. And I don't, I really cannot be optimistic right now. I can't see the silver lining. I can't be hopeful or whatever. Sorry. Um, because I just wake up every day to something new on the radio or on CNN or whatever. Um, and I just... I don't know. I, I think the day after the election, I was trying to tell myself, okay, maybe maybe this is going to be, you know, good for a reason that we don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. there's going to be, um, you know, positive things that come out of this in some crazy way. Mm-hmm. But each day is like really disproving that um, because I just think that um, there are more ridiculous things that come out of this right. I mean, um, I, whole thing and, and yeah like all the appointments that he's um, you know talking about and you know pointing this person to the, the EPA who doesn't even believe in climate change and I mean, oh he himself doesn't believe in climate and he change. does he it's himself a, doesn't it's a quote unquote Chinese hoax or conspiracy right because people just want to make money off of it um, uh, you know saying that oh we don't even know if the department of education is actually even going to exist right um so just things like that i really i don't know what to do going forward and 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 you're right i mean it is it is frightening on a lot of levels um to me specifically a lot of the things that are frightening are uh, the levels of hypocrisy that americans are willing to put up with yes um like we can, you know, give his son-in-law who, who nobody's ever casted a vote for ever anywhere. No. Um, you know, he, we can give him a top secret clearance and... For doing God knows what. Yeah, and we can give his kids, you know, top secret clearances and stuff like that while they're quote-unquote running the business through a blind trust or something like that, you know. Yeah. You know we can have all of these conflicts of interest, um... And, and nothing really matters. I mean, you know, we can have Mike Pence, who after the election is now trying to go to court to shield his emails from becoming public. Yeah, the hypocrisy scares me. Um, also, people just, I feel like I can't trust anyone around me at this point. Right. Um, because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in a very different space than Arib is, and I to this point i have not met a single like trump supporter which simply means i haven't met one that's willing to be open Mm -hmm. about it right Mm -hmm. so i can guarantee that there are people that i know who who i'm friends with who i'm maybe distant friends with who did go out and vote for him right but you know they hide behind this shield of you know oh i don't really care about politics Mm -hmm. oh i'm not really gonna say my opinion oh i don't really talk about this stuff in Uh public and right but or they could flat out pretend that they actually were supporting Hillary and the whole time they really didn't. So right. um, so I know that that exists around me. I know that um, there are now hateful people that exist around me that don't even think that I, as a black woman, as a Muslim woman, don't really matter, right? Um, 
whether that they support that part of Trump's agenda, which pe- a lot of people claim that they don't. They're right. like, oh, we don't care about all that hateful stuff that he says. We just right. care about the economy. Whether you do or not, you it's, are voting for that. It's irrelevant because you literally yeah. gave this person the highest endorsement that yeah. anybody who's living in the quote-unquote free world can give anyone. You enabled, you have enabled a man who um, is, again, I will say this again, is objectively, not subjectively, he is objectively using racist rhetoric and Islamophobic rhetoric and um, had many messages throughout his campaign that were anti-Semitic and the list, again, the list goes on. And, and what do we see in the fallout? I mean, this is a week out of the election. The Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, last night said that there have already been over 300 documented hate crimes since mm-hmm. last Tuesday. Mm-hmm. That is not normal. Mm-hmm. Graffiti. Many, many of these hate crimes were committed by explicit Trump supporters, and whether or not they were of voting age is irrelevant again, because if they were of voting age, they probably voted for him, and if they were not of voting age, it, it makes, around people. It makes yeah. me want to vomit, because yeah. it reminds me again that all of these people, a lot of liberals or Democrats or people of color, young people, they say, you know, we just have to wait until these racists die. And, you know, th- this generation, this older generation, no, that, that's, that is absolutely not, not the truth. It has trickled to because, even younger population. Because if, if that were true, then that elementary school in Maryland that mm-hmm. had killed blacks written in the bathroom, that mm-hmm. wouldn't have happened. Right. If this were true, then we wouldn't have Dylan Roof, a 17-year-old, killing Shoot nine black nine people. people in a black church. Right. That would not have happened. He would not have had the flag of of Rhodesia on his on his jacket. He had to he had to be taught that. Yep. That. that so comes it's not. From... Yeah, it's not just a matter of us waiting until these racists and sexists and etc. are are no longer a part of our population. This is something that we have to actively tackle, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and and Reem, I fully understand, and I. Honestly, like I, I'm all for it. If you don't want to be hopeful, like, no, no, I'm serious. Like, if if you and a, a significant amount of our our listeners, if you guys don't want to be hopeful, more power to you because that's your true feeling. And I and I was there, and part of me still is there. Um, part of me wakes up every morning, and I'm afraid for my mom who goes outside of the house wearing a hijab, who a lot of the times doesn't know who she's going to be talking to that day. Um, mm-hmm. You know things like that like I it does scare me but at the end of the day I know that there are people who have to wake up and be hopeful there are people who have to wake up and 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 say that you know one way or another I'm going to try to do something for these people who don't have the ability yet or don't or or aren't in the right mind frame yet to be positive or to be proactive yeah yeah, I guess for me, it's just hard right now when, um, you know, when I do keep reading about these um, these hate crimes. And I mean, you said, yeah, they, they already have an ongoing list of that. I mean, what more indicative of this, um, you know, this new movement in America, this new divide, um, other than, you know, uh, graffiti that says, you know, Trump's America, whites only. Right. Um, you know, 
Which was spray painted on a, on a Latino church not too far from here in Maryland. Right. Um, you know, not including all the other hundreds, hundreds of things um, that are being said and written and, and done. Um, there were definitely um, many hate crimes leading up to it, right? And right. then I think after the election, it kind of just unleashed, right? Because people feel... Um, as though Emboldened. they have, yeah, and they, they have no boundaries, right? Um, and, and something that we were talking about earlier um, is, um, you know, freedom of speech, right? Uh, just, you, I was also listening to something on the radio yesterday, um, and I think it was, it was a, a, a constitutional uh, law professor, um, something like that. Um, but he was saying that, you know, this is going to be the biggest problem that we face because it technically isn't illegal to right to say something offensive right people are going to keep offending you and people are going to keep saying hateful things but how can we legally hold people accountable for that and say hey this is a crime you know you are a criminal for doing this it's so difficult yeah right um and i mean that's it's different from you know like the the vandalism the the, the outright physical stuff, mm-hmm. but just the speech, right? And I think, and that's the other thing that social media is, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Like I think social media now has given so many people a platform, right? For better or for worse, mm-hmm. right? It gives people who have positive things to say a, yeah. an outlet, right? Yeah. Freely. And people who have negative things to say, hateful things to say, an outlet too. And mm-hmm. you can't, you can't stop them. You can't filter them. Yeah. So then what are we going to do? Yeah. One final message that I definitely have is that we must, yeah, yeah, no, um, um, we must never again believe that politics is something that we can opt in or opt out of. Right. We can never again believe that we have the choice whether or not um, to be active in political change and to be active in not only the voting process, but really, you know, community organizing and things like that. And I know that it's very different for a lot of people. And I know that, you know, different people are good at different things or, or want to be active in different ways. That's great. But everybody has a, has a part to play and everybody has a role that they can be playing. And I think now a lot of people, especially in our generation and a lot of, um, people of color, minorities, immigrants, etc., women, um, you know, we're feeling this pain and we need to remember how this feels. Yeah. We really need to take a look in the mirror and say, do I want to feel this way one more time or two more times or etc." Right. Yeah. And if the answer is no, then we all need to do something about it because like we're seeing right now, people's lives are at stake. A lot of people, when I mention anti-Semitism to them, they don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And then I show them the thousands if not hundreds of thousands if not millions of anti-semitic tweets that every single journalist i follow gets Mm -hmm. um you know things like that like if we don't acknowledge these things and Mm -hmm. if we don't tackle them head on Mm -hmm. um we're going to see a lot of negative social change and nobody's going to stand up for us yeah um it's up to us yeah and i mean and i do think that um it is, yeah, it's definitely hard to be positive right now, but I will say that 
I mean, it can't be like that for too long for me or for anyone else because I think taking on, um, you know, a defeatist attitude or feeling defeated and therefore, you know, just completely opting out of everything altogether is exactly what Trump and and his supporters and his, you know, his cabinet um, want, right? So do we really want to um, play to that agenda? Um, no. So I think that, um, we have to, we have to do something to at least try to, to prove them wrong or to at least build our own selves and our own, own communities. I mean, I think just in this past week, you know, the, the positive thing that has come out of it is that, you know, I find myself and and my friends, you know, we're all checking up on each other more. We're getting together. We're healing. (laughs) We're trying to heal together. Um, and really, really being there for each other. Um, even my family, you know, we've been, um, just hanging out with each other more. We, we, you know, after work and after my sister gets back from school, we're, um, we're really just kind of being in the same space. Um, and I think, that that's that's something good um we don't want to take people in our lives for granted we don't want to take anything for granted and yeah and like i said i think the most important thing is to not be defeated because then we're doing exactly what they want right we are we're literally handing it to them i think that moving forward one way that you know, Americans and people of color and immigrants and women and minorities and, and all these all these different types of groups. Um, one way that we can definitely be proactive is, like Reem just said, reach out to your neighbor, reach out to um, your cousin who you haven't talked to in a while and, and really see what these people are thinking. And um, regardless of who they voted for, um, see where their mind is at right now and see what kind of change that they want to see in their community see what kind of change they want to see in their state or the federal level. Um, And if you agree with that, great. Get out there and get together and do something. And if you disagree with that, great. Um, Sit down with them and talk to them about it and ask them questions. And try to come to some common understanding. And um, part of me really hates saying that because I do understand that it's difficult to find common ground with somebody who doesn't believe in your right to exist. But I promise you, if you take the step forward and if you take that first step in finding some common ground, even if you don't, you'll be better off for it and you'll be more prepared for the next incident of hate or um, person you encounter who doesn't believe in any of your beliefs. Mm I think Reem and I might be doing episodes like this more often. It's up to you guys. If you all listen, then we'll be here. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Cool for Thought, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon.